Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Before Auschwitz, which is also the title of one of dad's books. And um, my dad is an erupting volcano of fabulous works of written theology. But I would have to say out of everything that the volcano has produced, this may, in my judgment, be the most important one. And um, I was joking with dad that maybe to someone who has written a 900-page systematic theology, this is a somewhat irritating conclusion to come to. But as this podcast (laughs) unfolds, I will give my case for why I think this is such an incredibly important book. And uh, in this case, the market agrees with me. It's also one of dad's bestsellers. And not only because of its, let's face it, clickbaity title, Before Auschwitz. Dad, tell us how this book came to be. Well, uh, thank you for the uh, approbation there. You you actually agree with Carl Broughton, who described the book as a gem and a must-read for American Christian church leaders and theologians in our time in his book. book on uh, A Harvest of Lutheran Dogmatics and Ethics. Um, So uh, I'm happy to receive those accolades, uh, but more important than the accolades is the substance and the message of the book, which I think uh, remains exceedingly important for American Christians today. The writing of the book came about this way. Um, I needed to teach a freshman seminar, a general studies course, Um, at Roanoke College, and I was looking for a topic that interested me. We were told to teach from our passion um, and would also hook students who didn't know anything about World War II or Hitler or Nazism or the Holocaust or, for that matter, anything about Christian theology. So I came up with the course title Theologians Under Hitler, which was unashamedly borrowed from Robert Erickson's important 1985 book of that title. And I taught this course for a number of years, and in 2013, I synthesized my research and teaching experience in the book, which has the subtitle, What Christian Theology Must Learn from the Rise of Nazism. Now, right away, I have to raise a methodological issue here. I, great, I, w- I was greatly stimulated by Erickson's work, uh, and I had the opportunity once uh, at an extended uh, uh, session to discuss his work with him. And I benefited oh, I didn't know that. by much of Oh, yeah. I, I, let's see. Ron Thiemann had us uh, all to... Um, Harvard University for uh, some kind of seminar, and then we had a follow-up at at uh, Pacific Lutheran in Tacoma uh, a year or two later. So I, I, I knew Robert Erickson personally, and I discussed his work with him quite a bit. But even then, I was dismayed by uh, his indulgence in what historians call the fallacy of—this uh, is academic jargon— teleological (laughs) presentism, (laughs) end quote. In the book, I called it the retrospective fallacy, or in plain American idiom, Monday morning quarterbacking. Actually, Dad, I think this is one of the most important things that you bring out. And uh, once uh, in your book, you brought this to my attention. You see it absolutely everywhere all the time. And a lot of the really cheap shots that people today take at the past is based on what they know now, or at least what they think they know now, and therefore think people have always known. And therefore, people have always acted maliciously in the full knowledge that that we have now. Um so, yes, t- take some time to, to draw this out, because I think this is incredibly important, especially to theology doing anything useful going forward. Right. And, you know, it really is a methodological point. And people uh, object to my objection to the Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, in which, you know, we, we know the outcome of events, and therefore we can employ that certainty in evaluating uh, that after-the-fact certainty in evaluating historical agents who in their time and place did not know how things would turn out. That's, that's the concept that we're talking about here. Now, uh, people object to my objection, some do, 
that it amounts to exoneration by contextualization. So for all the mantras we hear in academia about context, context, nuanced argument in context, you know, there can be this exoneration of bad actors in history by contextualization that they fear when you, uh, when you raise the, the issue of um, the retrospective fallacy. My, for me, it is not about exoneration at all. It's about making judgment more precise and more accurate. When we appreciate the real-world horizon of possibilities, to use an expression of, 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 of Gadamer's, um, the horizon of possibilities that was there for a historical agent uh, and how they made their uh, historical decisions within a spectrum of possibilities that were available to them. So this allows us to see their decisions as those agents saw their choices. And that would allow us to evaluate more fairly and more accurately, accurately the decisions they made. That has nothing to do with exoneration. That has mm. everything to do with real, genuine, and accurate criticism that hits the target rather than paints with a broad brush or shoots a shotgun at the side of the barn and says, there, I hit the target. <laughs> well, to use like a, a lighter weight example of this, uh, but from roughly the same period, Casablanca is, of course, one of the most famous and beloved movies of all time. Um, and we know watching it that, of course, the right thing for Rick to do is to join the fight against the Nazis. But we also know that the Allies are going to win against the Nazis. And it's easy for us to see that now. But actually, the movie itself was made long before that was clear. And it was uh, and I think even the, the final ending that we see was one of several endings they filmed because even the filmmakers weren't quite sure how it should end, if Rick and Elsa should stay together, or go apart and what Rick was going to do. And and so once you know that actually Rick is making an uncertain decision um, in with incomplete knowledge, the, the movie takes on even a more heightened and impressive heroic drama to it. But I think we just also just know this from our own lives that, you know, we all have the experience of suddenly learning something we didn't know about before or having the blinders drop or waking up out of a delusion and being like, well, this changes everything now that I know that. But I think the the moral anxiety here is that, uh, in my experience, you know, most people, generally speaking, want to do the right thing, but not knowing what the right thing is and not having enough information to make the right thing and yet being demanded to make a decision and act or choose not to act is incredibly morally stressful. So I think this is one of the reasons why this the the retrospective fallacy or or looking at the past becomes a proxy war for our current moral anxiety because what if we are making desperately bad decisions and we didn't know better or what if we are making desperately bad decisions and we could know better and then how do we know whether or not we're knowing better? <laughs> so I, I think that's that's why this this is going to elicit strong feelings one way or another. Yeah, and it's so easy to make cheap analogies with the past. And particularly, I mean, the most recent example of that is Vladimir Putin's claim that invading Ukraine was about ridding the country of the Nazis running the place. I mean, that is just such a massive overreach and such an, a ridiculous um, um, a claim uh, to make that kind of analogy with the 1930s. Um, I'll have more to say about that at a future point. But, but I mean, easy, but you also, easy. Dad, um, but, uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I've heard you express concern that we are in a Weimarization period, which draws analogies to that same general past period. And so, you know, there, there has to be something more to justify when one claim is outrageous and one claim has some legitimacy. Yeah, and I think here's the difference, and I can make, make that clear right away. In our contemporary ideological idioms, Nazi is a curse word. To call someone a Nazi is about the most degrading uh, uh, epithet you can you can hurl. Um, and uh, and the cheap and easy appeal to to Nazi calling someone a feminazi or you know I, I mean right. that's one 
kind of ridiculous a use of the term Nazi, and there are many others, of course. But Weimarization is something that people rarely say. It's not <laughs> part of the part of the idiom. It's not part of the vocabulary we use to schmear. And it, I think, is a very precise kind of analogy. How do democracies fail? How do democracies crack up? How do constitutional democracies come undone, ironically enough, by legal and democratic means? That's what Weimarization stands for. And I've often said, you know, I remember one time, Sarah, I was teaching this course in the spring of 2016, if you can put your imagination back at the time of the rise of a certain politician. <laughs> and my students were bewildered by this, observing the contemporary political events. And they hailed me as they understood my book. They hailed me as a prophet. I was predicting what was happening right before their eyes in the United States. Now, as a good professor, I declined the honor and said that our period of Weimarization um, is that the pragmatic give and take of constitutional democracy is being canceled and overridden by extreme left-right ideological polarization. That's exactly what the analogy means. The street battles between the brown shirts and the the, um, uh, the reds that that terrorized urban populations in Germany at the, at the end of the 1920s and the beginning of the 1930s, which precipitated the rise of Adolf Hitler, who campaigned on the promise to deliver the German people from quote the chaos of parliamentarianism end quote. Well, we're not at the at the level of uh, of Democrats and Republicans battling in the street just yet, or I think more accurately, extreme versions of those two partisan politics battling each other. Um, but I I can see how the there would be an appeal of someone who would say, I will give you back peace and take away the chaos of all this polarization and fighting. Yes, I agree. The polarization is bad. Disagreement and strong argument is not bad. But I can see how polarization or what was going on in Weimar would give people such distaste for disagreement that the idea of having just one unified, harmonious nation under one glorious and loving leader would be a very, very huge temptation. Yeah, ein, ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. Mm. One, right. one regime, one people, one leader, and to which the German Christians added, und ein Gott. Yeah, one God, right. Well, and, and, and there's trying a, a bit for uh, one church as well. So that should bring us back to the point here. So there, there's a lot of way to relitigate the political aspects of the past. But I think what we want to focus here is specifically on theological and church responses to what was going on uh, up to the rise of, of Hitler, Nazism, and finally the Second World War and the Holocaust. So why don't you... Uh, yeah. And And I, I think what, what really interested me this time through the book, and, and this is why I think um, this book is so important, Dad, is because um, whenever you do any any academic discipline, you have to address the question of method. And method is often um, a bit dry until you actually get into the subject and you understand what's at stake in it. But even once you, you get what's at stake, there's always a sense in which method it can be conceived of separate from the, the material or the content itself. And certainly, you know, we've all, um, well, uh, theologians and philosophers are used to discussions of method um, that can have a sort of tangential connection to the content of theology. And what I think is really important here is as you work through all of these various theologians and church leaders and Hitler as well that you look at is that there is a constant and intrinsic give and take between content and method and that there are genuine consequences in both directions for what choices you make and what what commitments you have fundamentally what you worship and what you refuse to worship. And so uh, as we go through this, I'd really like you to to draw out um, 
what it was in the content that gave rise to the method and what in the method chose aspects of content in both the people who failed very badly um, on various, uh, I, I think, um, Readers and listeners will be surprised at the enormity of the failures on what we would typically characterize as both right and left, though, as you'll say, that doesn't map quite right onto the time. But also, what is it in the method and contents and their interrelationship that made the people who got it right? I mean, that that's why they got it right. People like Bonhoeffer and Bart and Zasse and so forth. Yeah, that that's a really complex question to answer because there's at least two different levels there's the secondary level. I already mentioned my criticism of Robert Erickson's um, constantly invoking the 1980s term neoconservative, which characterized the regime of Ronald Reagan, and using that epithet uh, to describe the political and religious support for Hitlerism in the 1930s. Um, when in fact uh, there was very little that was, quote, conservative, close quote, about the Nazi movement at all upon examination. Uh, so it was a retrojection of a contemporary political um, uh, smear word, neoconservative, on the data uh, from the 1930s regarding the rise of Nazism um, that I found quite misleading. Uh, and we'll get into the reasons for that later on. Um, well, maybe I can just mention quickly in advance. When I worked through Adolf Hitler's um, uh, monologues uh, from uh, the time in which he was at the forward outpost behind the Russian front in the 1941 and 1942, all this material was dictated and consolidated and so forth. And so here you see Hitler feeling like he's on the cusp of a triumph. Uh, he's about to defeat so the Soviet Union, and he's dreaming freely and wildly about his purposes and plans. And you see that he is anything but a traditional conservative, not even a neoconservative. <laughs> he is a progressive change agent who thinks that he's on the cutting edge of scientific research and that he is bringing about the fulfillment of what Napoleon tried to do to bring the blessings of the French Revolution to the rest of Europe. You know, so the last thing in the world Hitler thought of himself of uh, was a neoconservative or a neoconservative. And in fact, it was the conservatives in the military that finally put got worked up their courage to try to assassinate him. So there's just a lot that's very confused about that methodological error of retrojecting contemporary American understandings of the left-right conflict back onto the 1930s. Then there's another question that you're asking about the theologians of the 1920s and 30s in Germany and what went wrong with their theological methods. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, uh, whatever um, Hitler thought he was doing, and, and that is, I think, a, a valid question, not just dismissing him as a, you know, genocidal lunatic. Um, well, he was, but that that that's not sufficient to explain that he obviously also had had method in his madness, and there was an intelligence behind his evil. Um, but I, I think that's not ours to to uh, prosecute right here. Uh, I think it, it can take as read that we condemn everything <laughs> about Hitler, but I think what what we really need to understand is what was it that people heard or projected on to Hitler among the theologians, and we'll, we'll focus here primarily on, on the Protestant ones. Catholics have their own story, a painful story that they have to deal with there. Um, what was it that snared them or made them susceptible, and what was it that gave resistance to those who were able to resist? Yeah, that's great. And, it, you know, Sarah, this is a particularly acute question for theologians like us in the tradition of Luther, since this yeah. originated in the land of Luther and in the very heartlands of Lutheranism in Saxony and Thuringia produced fanatical religious support for Hitlerism. So, I mean, that that's just a fact of history. Now, of course, Hitler himself was an apostate Catholic, and he had plenty of support from Catholic regions throughout Europe. Um, but it's a particular burden of Lutheran theology 
to investigate and come clean on what happened in the land of Luther. And, of course, there is the outrageous calls for violence against the Jews that Luther made at the end of his own life, which was happily republicized by the pro-Nazi German Christians in the 1930s. So a real reckoning here is overdue, in my view. Yeah. I just I want to say we, we did do an episode a while back on Luther and the Jews, so I'll put a link to it. And um, I certainly have no wish to defend Luther on the, any of that stuff at all. And I, again, for both of us as theologians, coping with the whole Christian history of anti-Judaism and later anti-Semitism is important to what we do. But I do think just for the sake of getting the historical record right, Luther did call for awful things against the Jews, but he did not call for their extermination. And I do think that distinction needs to be made. Yeah, that's of course true. And, and extermination, of course, would have beyond the horizon of his historical possibilities in any case. Yeah. But even uh, murder, or, he, he, he wanted them exiled from the land. He did not want them murdered uh, the way that, you know, he could have been, Luther himself could have been legitimately murdered and no one would have obje- objected to. That, that isn't something that he called for. Again, this is not to say that Luther wasn't so bad. He was really bad on this topic. But there is a difference between the systematic genocide that's planned by modern scientific progressive peoples around Hitler and L- Luther's um, awful conception of Christendom that had to, be, had to be a body purified through exile of the offending Jews. Yeah, I, the, the only caution I would have about that, Sarah, is that how to what it's an open, it's an important question, and we don't need to adjudicate it here. But to what extent did Hitler conceal his murderous intentions against the Jews from the German people themselves? Uh, you know, that was the decision to exterminate the Jews was not made until like 1941, or you know, really late already, I think, uh, in anticipation of the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, And so the Holocaust evolved. It was primarily the original policy was right up Luther's alley. Let's round up all the Jews in Poland and ship them off to Madagascar. (laughs) Right. So, So, right. uh, Deportation and exile were the earlier strategies before mass murder became the final final solution. right, Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Okay. So anyway, you know, one of the reasons I want to say that a reckoning is overdue here is that theologians like Paul Althaus and Werner Ehlert were recommended to us when I was a theological student, while Bonhoeffer was being dismissed as a Bardian, terrible, terrible (laughs) thing, a Bardian. You know, and if you want to see an egregious example of theological bad method in, in historical theology, read the chapter uh, uh, in Before Auschwitz about Lowell Green and his pig-headed defense of Althaus and Ehlert, um, accusing Karl Barth in the process of being a, um, 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 a theocrat who wanted uh, to rule the world with the gospel. I mean, it's just it's just unbearably, <laughs> painfully stupid, and and self-exculpating. Uh, but look at these figures: Paul Althaus and Werner Ehlert were the lead voices in the Ansbach Memorandum, condemning the Barman Declaration, and claiming in the process to be the authentic voice of Lutheranism, and thanking God for Adolf Hitler as a pious prince sent to save the German nation. <laughs> I mean Yeah, I have to say I was I was really shocked when I read this in your book because I I was still assigned Althaus's book on Luther. I can't remember if it was college or seminary. I think at least when I was in seminary, the shift was made over to Bernhard Loza. And I'm sure that's why finally realizing like we can't assign a book by a Nazi supporter who acclaimed Hitler. I mean, obviously, Althaus sort of came to his senses later. But wow. And Ehlert is still quite popular in some circles. Wow. Yeah, it is. And and again, you don't want to commit the same error of simply um, dismissing a theologian because of bad judgments that were made. And both the case of Althaus and Ehlert would require a deeper discussion. 
to contextualize um, uh, their bad decisions. Let me just say this. Uh, Paul, uh, Robert Erickson treated Paul Althaus, I think, with this kind of subtlety and basically very well. And our friend Nathan Yoder wrote his doctoral dissertation on Paul Althaus and his failures in this regard under the direction of Hans Schwartz. And uh, there, too, they basically uh, come to the very interesting nuance that Paul Althaus was not a so-called conservative theologian. He was a fed mitlungsteolog, a theologian of mediation. He was trying to reconcile uh, the opposing factions uh, in, at the time of the rise of Hitler. He wanted the church to reach out to the brown shirts and bring them into the fold. You know, so, uh, and, and these are kind of pious impulses. And of course, in the beginning, the brown shirts were flocking into the German Christian churches for wedding ceremonies. The churches were full again. And um, there was no one knew Hitler's religious beliefs. And he was, you know, uh, he was very deliberately concealing them from the German public for, for that time. Right. Well, and you want to make the gospel risk of taking people at face value and hoping that, you know, if they come through the door, you can set them straight on whatever is wrong and you're supposed to love your enemies. Yeah. I mean, you, you can see how in its own time, this would seem a, a reasonable risk to take. Yes. I mean, you can at least at least charitably read it that way. Althaus sent two sons to the war and they both lost their lives. And by... Oh. Christ, the time of Kristallnacht in 1938, his uh, statements of public support for the Nazis disappeared, and he kept silence until the end of the war. And at the end of the war, uh, his basic message was that there had been no fear of God in the land, and that's why the Nazis committed these atrocious crimes, um, and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it's complex and you have to be just in making these evaluations. But here, if you ask, here's the methodological problem. This pig-headed Lutheranism is it and everybody else is wrong attitude um, that caused Ehlert and Althaus to um, condemn the Barman Declaration, which was a compromised document that included I think it's in the seventh thesis of the Barman Declaration, a concession to the Lutheran doctrine of the two kingdoms to go along with the Reformed emphasis on the Lordship of Christ. So the Barman Declaration was not a one-sidedly Reformed document at all. Um, and uh, it was... A, a, it, it, it included the, a Lutheran perspective on um, um, the crisis created by the Arian Clause uh, and the exclusion of Jews from the Evangelical Church that the Barman Declaration was addressing. Um, and I think that's the problem, that, that, that Lutheran theologians have lost a sense of Catholicity, that we are a confessing movement within uh, the, the, the Church Catholic, and that we need, we are not it. That in the way that we can be self-sufficient, we need to listen to other voices and self-critically look at what they're seeing about us, right? And I think that that's the, the deep methodological flaw in that kind of hyper-Lutheranism of Althaus and Ehlert at the time. Right. But I, I, that's that's really good. And of course, it immediately then raises the question of how much do you um, either compromise or set aside substantial differences in in content of faith? I mean, obviously, if we're all hopefully if we're all within Christianity, there, there's not two enormous differences. But um, you can also immediately see how there would be compromises on substance in order to uh, address an outer thing that would itself be a kind of betrayal. So this requires making the judgments, you know, and again, if we're looking within their own time, the judgment that what is substantially proposed by the the 
the new the Third Reich and the German Christians is so far off from the true testimony of the gospel that in this specific case, it makes sense to set aside the real, but in this case, negligible differences between Lutherans and Reformed in order to join forces against a greater evil. But that that requires rendering the judgments. And you can also easily imagine cases where um, divided Christians join forces to attack something that is not worth attacking, or they set aside matters of substance that are in fact a betrayal of what they're committed to. Yeah, well, of course. And the Bar- Sarah, the Barman Declaration itself says that. It says nothing in this confession is to be construed as setting aside the confessional differences between the Reformed, the Lutherans, and the Union churches under the umbrella of the Evangelical Church, and that they are uniting around basic Evangelical Christian Protestant convictions about the Lordship of Christ uh, and the limited sphere of authority of the state uh, in that light uh, to protest against the German Christian attempt to coordinate, that was the term used, to coordinate church and theology with the Nazi worldview. And this, so if that's the case, then it seems like a rejection of Barman is is genuinely bad judgment, that it, it really is a failure at a very deep level. It's not just a misunderstanding or a mistake, but there's something deeply um, incriminating theologically about refusing to acknowledge what Barman is doing. Yes, and it's, a, and it's of course, the, the terrible, terrible bad habit of German Lutheranism historically to keep looking at the state as a patron of the church and, and wishing with longing eyes that Hitler would be such a patron. What a, what a self-deception that turned out to be. But here, let's, let's, let's take a quick look at an alternative of a good theological method. And that was the collaboration between Dietrich, the young Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the young Hermann Zasse in 1933, a full year before the Barman Declaration, when they got together uh, to draft the so-called Bethel Confession, which tragically never saw the light of day uh, until it had been rewritten by pro-Nazi sympathizers to such an extent that Bonhoeffer disowned it. But if you take a good look at that original draft that in August of 1933 that Bonhoeffer and Zasse collaborated on, you see an, a profound appeal to Scripture and the Lutheran confessional writings to critique the totalitarian state as an unevangelical synthesis of church and state into the, 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 the Third Reich. And also, the terrible theological error of the German Christian, pro-Nazi German Christian movement of enthusiasm, of claiming to have a new working of the Spirit apart from the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, uh, revealing to them the new thing God was doing in the National Socialist worldview. So there you have an example, I think, of the right kind of method in Lutheran theology that, that sees uh, back to the 16th century sources and to the scriptures uh, a diagnostic of um, the, the terrible spiritual error uh, in Christianity of thinking that you can have a revelation that is not normed by uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, okay, so I'm sure we could interestingly investigate also social and psychological reasons for why Ehlert and Althaus went one way and Zasa and Bonhoeffer went another way. But if you could just boil it down pithily, what was the theological both content and method move that Zasa and Bonhoeffer made correctly and Althaus and Ehlert made incorrectly? Yeah, well, this gets down pretty thick into some sociological and demographic weeds. Uh, Bunheffer was a child of Berlin, cosmopolitan in orientation with Jewish relatives and friends. Zasse had been 
um, also in the Berlin-Brandenburg uh, Union Church, and had come to his Lutheranism as an adult convert, practically speaking. Um, yeah. um, um, and it was, of course, in these same circles, these desiccated circles of Protestant liberalism, uh, that support for the German Christians ha had arisen. And so both of them had kind of social experiences that would have inclined them to see the error of the pro-Nazi German Christians, whereas Althaus and Ehlert were safely ensconced in the Lutheran ghettos in the south of Germany, uh, where anti-Catholicism was the main identity of being Lutheran. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and also, you know, they, Althaus had been a chaplain in World War I, and he experienced the Band of Brothers kind of thing during the war um, and uh, thought he saw in Nazism a resurgence of German unity reminiscent of the brotherhood of the men in the trenches from the Great War. And there in the south of Germany, they nursed this stab-in-the-back theory that they had just about won World War I when they were betrayed at home by Jews and socialists and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, there are, you know, obviously there are his contextual and sociological factors here. Um, but I think the fundamental problem, as I mentioned earlier, with conservative Lutherans is that they culturally ghettoize themselves. They don't want to be in dialogue with views other than their own. And I don't think how you even recognize what's your own view if it's not in conversation with other views. And I mean conversation in the sense of a hermeneutic of charity and not a hermeneutic of hostility. So that's interesting. So I think what's so fascinating and troubling about this is how Hitler could captivate as different groups as the hyper-conservative, ghettoized, non-dialoguing Lutherans in something like a, a still intact state and church and family system, like, you know, all the goods of creation um, other than, you know, the, the bitterness of the post-Treaty of Versailles realities they were dealing with. And at the same time, Hitler captivated the, the uh, um, uh, loosely religiously committed, um, urban, disaffected people looking for a cause to commit themselves to, and then the kind of uh, progressivist patrons of science. So somehow he managed to snare everybody. So okay, so we've we've <laughs> seen the the yeah we've seen the failure on the the conservative ghettoized Lutheran side, but Bonhoeffer and Zasa are living in the more you know cosmopolitan environment, but they are not sucked into the progressivist narrative either. So what what was it? How did the how did the more progressive or liberal Protestant or unionized Christians get sucked into this? And how is it that that, that with, with the Explain that with the goal of saying how Zasa and Bonhoeffer were able to see through that even while living in the midst of it. Yeah, and here the great source is the study by Richard Steigman Gall, uh, which proves things that he did not intend, and uh, but that's because he did an enormous <laughs> amount of um, uh, good um, uh, research, which he reports in his book, even though he misunderstands. He's no, Steigman Gall is no theologian, and he doesn't really know what he's doing with the theological material. But he and what's repeated, the name of his book? Um, Holy Reich. Okay. Mm -hmm. Richard Steigman Gall, Holy Reich. I discuss it in Before Auschwitz. Um, and it's a, it's a very good piece of research, like I said, even though he doesn't understand the theology that he's uh, discussing. Uh, but what he reveals historically again and again and again is that the ranks of the pro-Nazi German Christians was filled with the liberal Protestants coming out of the 19th century. They had come to the conclusion that the Jewishness of Jesus was something to be forgotten and discarded and to be overcome that there was no future for the God of the Old Testament, that Jesus had to be redeemed from Judaism in order to be a current and present savior of the German people in their post-World War I travail. 
um, and that they were basically free, uh, free from the boundaries of scripture and confession uh, to recreate Christianity to suit the pressing needs of the contemporary hour. And that's what Stigman Gall reveals again and again and again. Um, another great book uh, along these lines by Doris Bergen um, uh, also reinforces this analysis. And again, by the time of 1920s Germany, the tradition of liberal Protestantism in Germany was pretty, pretty, uh, in pretty bad shape. It was no longer the vital thing it had been a century before. And it was empty churches with empty sermons looking for a soul and looking for a savior. And along comes <laughs> Hitlerism, and they found what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Wow. So yeah, that that is astonishing that Hitler, I mean, again, because we, we so associate fascism and the racism of Nazism with, uh, again, in, in American parlance mapping onto the extreme rights. But uh, clearly what's going on here is also an appeal to the extreme left, which is progressive, forward thinking, scientific. Um, but I... I, I guess the astonishing thing to me, and, and maybe this would be my, my, I'll call this my rule of thumb or my rubric for understanding what's distinctive about modernity, which is the, there's a totalizing impulse. Uh, we use the word totalitarianism, but for the way we use that word in English, it's an accomplished legal fact. But I think what I see more and more is this totalizing impulse that comes out of wanting, whether it's our theories or our science, to capture everything. And I think you see maybe what is the Achilles heel for both the conservatives and the progressives in this story is that they're both looking for a totalizing answer to life. Yes. And mm -hmm. maybe that's where the critique can be fruitfully brought forward to our, our um, you know, truly different situation in 21st century U.S., but also one that shares, you know, the same uh, fundamental civilizational root with what's happening in Europe. Um, uh, does that sound right to you, totalizing as the a, a deep driver here? I, I take that all the way back to the, the father of modern politics, Thomas Hobbes, uh, and his book, The Leviathan. Uh, Leviathan, the God on earth, the incarnate God, the Leviathan is political sovereignty in his day and age, the royalty. But if you read the Leviathan, one of the things you discover is that Hobbes hated Augustine's doctrine of the two cities. And his ah. entire book is an attempt to expel the spiritual city from the secular city, or at least to drive it deeply underground. So the king becomes the pope, and the pope is assimilated into the king, uh, a totalizing society. Modern secular political theories, not only fascism and communism, but also, you know, as I think you're observing, many of the versions of secular liberalism, the desiccated liberalism of today, all agree on this Hobbesian secularization agenda. Uh, now, here I want to point out that political sovereignty was not one of the original Lutheran orders of creation. Right, um, right. It was the family, maybe the paterfamilias, but it was, there, was no, there, was no, there was no idea of a state until after the fall of the first couple. And in Lutheran theology, then the state as an institution is an emergency order, a not a not ordung, ordnung, not ordnung, an emergency order, it, and it exists only temporarily, and it exists as an instrument of God's providential keeping of the peace, so we sinful human beings don't utterly ravage and destroy ourselves. 
And right. You know, I, I recently read a, a book that was a history of the Soviet Union's destruction of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Russia. It's, there's no happy ending. It's, it's just an appalling story of progressive destruction. But what I noted most interestingly theologically is that early on, and again, we can't commit the retrospective fallacy here. They didn't know what they were dealing with. They continually appealed to Romans 13 to try to convince the Soviet state, we are good citizens. We know that the state is a God-given order and we support it. And by the time they're approaching their total extermination, they have shifted to preaching from Revelation and the great beast that exists only to destroy um, the, the the lamb and the followers of the lamb. And, um, <laughs> I, you know, they, they could not have stopped the Soviet juggernaut, but there was there, I definitely thought, I wish that you'd taken Revelation seriously at the beginning and not only preached from Romans 13. Yes, boy, is that that's excellent, Sarah. And that's exact. But see, that's exactly the critical potential of the two kingdoms doctrine, if we rightly understand it. First of all, the state, according to Romans thirteen, is a monopoly on violence. This he does not bear the sword in vain, right? It's a monopoly on violence, the means of coercion, and as such, it is God's. And let me put this quite powerfully. It is God's sinful antidote for the time being to chaotic violence. Now, any absolutation, uh, absolutizing of political sovereignty, a la Romans 13, would be antichrist for just that reason. And so we have to have this tension-laden view of political sovereignty. We can't live with it and we can't live without it. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Right. Okay, well, then, since we're getting towards the end here, um, you and your book propose a number of, of um, theses or, or topics or things that need to be harvested for theology to be fruitful going forward and in whatever way it can hope to avert or at least name enormous evils that will certainly arise as history continues its course uh, for theology to actually do its critical job. So why don't you talk us through some of those? Yeah, I think the first takeaway is to come to terms with the death knell of Christendom. Um, and uh, I know Hans Schwartz once saw me use this expression, and he was very perplexed by it. And I said, Hans, I didn't say the end of Christianity. I said the end of Christendom. There's a difference. And Christendom is historically the model that goes all the way back in the West to Charlemagne's coronation by Pope Leo. And it was this idea of a new and holy Roman Empire. Um, and ever since, including the magisterial reformation of the 16th century, both Lutheran and Calvinist and Anglican, um, there, these were attempts to renovate Christendom, Protestant attempts to renovate Christendom. But here's the bad fact, what we learned from the rise of Nazism. The model of Christendom was unable effectively to recognize or oppose Hitler's evil and inevitably sought to be in symbiosis with it. The Christians, just like those poor Russian Lutherans you just mentioned, we're constantly saying to the state, we're good people and good citizens. Won't you please protect us? When, of course, the, the, these evildoers knew very well that the whole Christian message was antithetical to what they were up to. They were good Hobbesians who were trying to expel the spiritual city, the city of God, from the city of man. So what does that leave us with? Here's my takeaway, Sarah. The adjective Christian only legitimately modifies the community of faith, the other words, the church, never the nation, let alone the state, let alone the empire. There's no such thing as Christian nationalism. There's no such thing as Christian imperialism. What we are left with is the ruins of Christendom, the moral decay uh, and death knell of Christendom. And now we are in a new and unanticipated cultural situation, the church in a post-Christendom world. I think that is correct. I think it's important to say 
that we say this fully recognizing that a nakedly secular state with whatever ideology it obeys is, of course, going to be deeply, deeply problematic as well and violence and totalizing. And that so that what we're advocating here is not a retraction or silence of the Christian faithful or the church um, in the public sphere, but that the way that the, the, the Christian faith relates to the public sphere is not one of like you said, symbiosis or being a chaplain to coercive power. Right. And of course, with the doctrine of vocation, the priesthood of all believers, we ought to be in the business of equipping the people of God, the laity. We clergy, we theologians ought to be in the business of, of equipping the laity for political vocations. Uh, which is not a matter of Christianizing the state or Christianizing the nation or Christianizing the empire, but Christians uh, uh, actually being effectively deployed in state politics, etc., um, as Christians, qua Christians, and unafraid to confess their allegiance, uh, sole allegiance ultimately to Jesus Christ, but not making that some kind of propaganda tactic um, or political tactic, but rather using that con conviction of faith, hope, and love uh, to, to leaven the whole lump. Yeah. I think we often lament that secularized people in the West don't know why, for example, they support human rights. They support human rights because that is the legacy of the Christian faith. But I realize like, it's better for them to go on supporting human rights and not knowing why than to stop supporting human rights and saying, well, let's <laughs> right. just get rid of problematic people. And I think that's another place where the, the sort of, of, of influence or inspiration that you give does not have to be and ought not to be coercive. But that doesn't mean that Again, you're, you're rendered silent or non-resistant. Or even worse, Sarah, is some reactionary Christian responses to secular politics of human rights and to oppose it as if it opposed Christianity. Well, I'll have more to say about that at a future date. Okay, why don't you go on to your next point then? Well, I think, you know, for Christians, especially pre-critical Christians, the distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism is an honest one. It makes sense uh, that that's that's why for centuries Christians tried to convert Jews to Christianity to evangelize the Jews, because uh, they didn't think that being Jew was some kind of ethnically ethnic poison or ethnic evil. Uh, being Jewish was simply a, a, a fact of human diversity um, and opposition to Judaism's opposition to Christianity was just natural uh, right. from a Christian point of view. So there's a the point being that there. until the modern era, the Christians could only regard Jews religiously and not ethnically. And the category of racial doesn't exist until quite a bit later anyway. I think that during the Spanish Inquisition, there were the first rumblings of the ideal, uh, idea of evil blood, which kind of evolved out of the idea that these recalcitrant, hard-hearted Jews could be confronted with all the evidence for the truth of Christianity and, and diabolically resist the truth. It must be bad blood or something like that. Well, and also because um, they were forced to convert, and then and then the inquisitors doubted the sincerity of their conversion. Duh! But instead of explaining it by being the result of the coercion, they said, "Well, it must be something like you said in the blood." Yeah, I think that after the Holocaust, the distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism is passe. It certainly is for contemporary Jews, for whom being Jewish is both an ethnic identity and a religious tradition indissolubly together. Um, and we have to simply respect that as the self-identification of our neighbors who are Jews. So what's my theological takeaway from that? Uh, Jewish unbelief in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel must become a principle internal to Christian theology, accentuating the stumbling block. Also, and first of all, for us Christians, the stumbling block 
of the, quote, crucified Christ, close quote. Do our Christians at all aware of what a stumbling block that is, what an oxymoron, what a contradiction in terms it is to speak of a crucified Christ? I think very few of them are. Yeah, and yeah. This is, however, the good rational reason, historically, the Jews have disbelieved in Jesus. Crucified Christ, that's like Joshua put to the edge of the sword. That's like David slain by Goliath. Can't be. The cross of Jesus is his refutation as a messianic pretender. And for Christians, nevertheless, to assert that the crucified Jesus is the Messiah of Israel is quite an awesome um, contradiction in terms until we break through to the hidden meaning of it, I say, or something like that. So it, what it's saying is a, a, a part away from triumphalism against the Jews, but to uh, uh, embracing the dubitability of our claim about Jesus and our faith in Jesus and coming to terms with that. You know, it's it's funny that in um, I've been teaching a Bible study at my congregation on the Gospel of John. We just meet once a month, so we're, it's almost two years now that we've been working at it. But I have found now that with my, my awareness turned up on all of these issues and um, particularly fascinating in a place with almost no history of actual Jews living here, how much just kind of casual and not mean, but just inherited anti-Judaism just kind of seeps out. You know, they're like, well, I don't like the Old Testament as much as the New Testament because God is mean in the Old Testament. Or, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know, like the, the incarnation and the crucifixion and resurrection are just like self-evidently good. And, you know, well, they must, you know, Jews must just not like God being close. They want God to be far away or, you know, like just, and it's yeah. it's not, What's, what's disturbing is it's not mean and it's not racial, but it's so deeply embedded there. So I, I sometimes joke that my Gospel of John Bible study could be renamed Introduction to Judaism because I find myself <laughs> continually making the case against Jesus in order to make what's going on in John um, intelligible, and right. but also to to um, pull back the temptation to use the Gospel of John and some very disturbing things in it to promote further, you know, just entrench this um, not mean, instinctive um, Christian insult to Jews for not getting what should be so totally obvious. Yeah, that's very good, Sarah. And the Gospel of John is a good proving ground for an experiment along those lines. Uh, we've had our podcasts on John and Matthew, and what's striking is that these two most um, gospels most reflective of origins in Jewish Christian communities, Matthew and John, are the gospels that carry the 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 texts uh, that historically are the sources of Christian anti-Judaism, uh, then you know later evolving into anti-Semitism. The, uh, the, the self-cursing uh, of the Jewish mob in Matthew, his blood be upon us and on, on our children. And uh, in John 8, Jesus saying, you are of your father, the, uh, the devil, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Um, so it's important to bring out the fact that these uh, overstatements in Matthew and John come from an early Christian context in which all Christians were Jews, and there were fights between them about the messianic status of Jesus. All right, well, look at uh, another uh, lesson going along with the end of Christendom consists in a, as you just mentioned, a recognition of the disputability of the Christian claim to truth. Now, disputability does not mean that Christians cease to make a claim to truth. As Luther wrote in The Bondage of the Will, take away assertions and you take away Christianity. The gospel asserts, rejoice and be glad. The crucified Jesus was raised by God from the dead and made both Lord and Christ for us and for our salvation. That's an assertion. That's a claim to truth. But it is obviously disputable. 
it's obviously something that can be doubted. And the recognition that this is not evidence that demands a verdict, as cheesy apologetics would have us think, but this is a claim to truth that is either received in a personal revolution akin to Saul the Pharisee on the road to Damascus getting turned into Paul the Apostle, missionary to the godless Gentiles. Uh, the the tra- Believing this claim to truth entails a personal revolution uh, of akin to Paul's conversion, right, or something like that. And the the bad faith attempt historically of the church to uh, exchange chaplaincy to the empire or the nation state in exchange for political patronage is a done deal and it has corrupted the true mission of the church. And of course, the true mission of the church is the missionary act of the Son and the Spirit onto the nations, as we talked about in our podcast on Luke and Acts, um, um, sent by the Father for the whole world's salvation by inclusion into what we call, uh, after Martin Luther King, the beloved community of God. And here that, you know, that has to lead to this very post sharp post-colonial point uh, about the missionary movement of the 19th century. Mission ceases to be the white man's burden, I'm being very sarcastic here, to lift up little black and brown brothers, brothers, um, piggybacking on the colonialist or neo-colonialist nation building. Uh, that's just got to, that's got to be done. It, it, it is largely done, uh, both in the previous colonial powers and in the liberated nations of this greater world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree that I just want to add the historical note that there are certainly really egregious um, colonialist mission attempts that are white man's burden, and they're about imposing a foreign civilization rather than bringing the message of the gospel. But there is also a lot, a lot, a lot of missionaries who, once they got there and met the people and learned the language and the culture, they were doing everything in their power to protect the people, to give them their own language, to uplift and honor their culture and to let the gospel do its work there. So I think it's sometimes really easy for Americans and Europeans to gain moral points from being disgusted at missionaries. But um, in my own experience of talking to um, Christians from what we, you know, the developing world, the global South, whatever you want to call it, um, I often hear them express a lot of gratitude and admiration to their, their missionaries and say, yeah, they didn't get everything right, but they brought us the gospel and we've got it now. And that's great. And we're doing what we need to do to, uh, you know, um, build up our churches. So, Yes to the end of of uh, neo colonial and patronizing mission, but no to the idea also that that's all it ever was. Right, and I think you know uh, the Lutheran World Federation at Dar es Salaam in 1981 uh, finally made the breakthrough here when it declared apartheid a Christian uh, heresy uh, in violation of Galatians 3:28 and. That was really a kind of a theological breakthrough when uh, it declared a status confessionis, kind of a misuse of Latin lingo, but anyway, uh, important <laughs> a point to be made that any kind of uh, politically sovereign, uh, in coercively enforced segregation of races, races is a, a, a situation that the Church of Galatians 3 26 to 28 cannot uh, accept without public protest. Hmm. Good, good. Okay. And I think you have one last point. Yeah, maybe one last thing. And this, I brought this out in my systematic theology in a long discussion of the concept of conscience based upon the, the name Karl Barth gave his journal in the late 1920s a theological existence today. And of course, this was picking up upon the, the, the vogue of, in which existential philosophy was at the time um, 
human existence. But when Bart talked about theological existence, uh, he was talking about the vocation of theology, what it means to be in the vocation of theology. And this was not as it had come to be understood in German academia, you know, as being uh, an academic uh, virtuoso. Um, uh, but rather, for Bart, living ever fresh in the presence of the God of the gospel. And that meant for Bart the freedom and the duty constantly to start over, conscientiously listening ever again to the word of God and starting fresh in the task of understanding here and now. And I think this is a very valuable um, reminder to theologians that uh, we are responsible to God for our talk about God. Um, there we will answer for the way we talk about God. And the thoughtfulness and the seriousness and the conscientiousness that is required requisite to that but also the freedom to set aside all of our preconceptions uh, and even our own precious achievements and insights and continually lifelong to be a learner, uh, uh, to be a child, like Luther said with the catechism, to be a child again <laughs> and study mm. the catechism daily or something like that, right? So I think that we have to get away from the idea that being a theologian is some kind of impressive uh, intellectual virtuosity. Um, what you sarcastically called after your husband, Andrew, jock theology. <laughs> right? uh, using you his know, term, not, not, not after him. He's definitely not a jock theologian. It's his term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. He, he created this term I'm citing, right? Now, in place of that theological existence, uh, um, the only way to go forward after the after the collapse of Christendom and the discredit into which the vocation of theology has fallen with it is theological existence today. All right. Well, that sounds like a mandate to keep going with the podcast on theology. So Yeah, I think so. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, so um, sort of uh, following up in a way from especially the uh, importance of, of reconsidering massively the Christian relationship to Judaism and uh, post-Holocaust. Um, next time on the show, we are going to be talking about the Jewish mother of our Jewish savior, Mary Theotokos. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.